We're in business to save the planet, and we use making clothes to do that. For over 45 years, Patagonia has committed to taking responsibility for their impact on the environment by pioneering sustainable practices and inspiring other businesses to do the same. The cure for depression is action. Every one of us has to step up and do what you can according to what your resources are. Patagonia, in business to save our home planet. Join us. You're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries, a production of Duct Tape Thin Beer, with additional support from Kuat Racks, Because You Love Your Bike, and Kicking Horse Coffee. Wake up and kick ass. What's up, Jen? How are you doing, Fitz? I'm pretty good. Um, you said you have a question for me. Yeah. So why do you still have a Facebook account? Is there, like, any upside Ooh. to Facebook <laughs> these days? That's a, I, that's a good question. I, I think, one, there's, like, a laziness to ending it because, realistically, I feel like Facebook is basically the digital version of the world's worst Thanksgiving dinner. Everyone sort of shows up. They're a little bit loose with their tongues. They start talking politics. They torch relationships. And then they wake up the next morning and they're like, did I really just do that? And on top of it, they realize that their Uncle Larry's, his new wife, Vladia, was actually pouring everyone an extra glass of wine just to facilitate all the drama all along. I'm taking it that you don't think that there's much of an upside. I mean, I'd like to say that maybe it's a place where there is some democratic debate going on. I think in theory that's true, but in practice, I have a harder time calling what's happening on Facebook debate. It's more like people are yelling at each other. And I know that I fall into that trap and then I get pretty frustrated and I'll log out for months. I do think there is one silver lining that I've seen in that platform. I would say that I've gotten to know my community, my friends, some of my acquaintances a little bit better, both on a macro and a micro level. How is that? Well, as a country, we've obviously been cycling through a lot of issues. There's race, there's immigration, Me Too, healthcare, mass shootings, environment. We've sort of been on this like complete pressure chamber of crazy things happening to us. And each time one of these news cycles rolls out, I almost always see one or two people on my Facebook feed come forward with a powerful, personal, real story about their own experiences. I've seen stories about sexual assault, struggles with health care and insurance, impacts of rising taxes on people's like living situations. I've heard about the plight of rural communities on real personal levels. And I didn't know that those were things that my friends or acquaintances carried because that's, it's not typically the kind of thing someone wants to share on social media. And I feel like their stories put the news in a little bit more context. And a lot of what's going on in our country, if I look at it, I think to myself, the way forward, it is through intellectual empathy. We are way better off when we try to understand each other as people rather than trying to understand each other's politics. And these stories, when I see people share them, they seem to remove a little bit of that bubble that can surround the outdoor community for me. It makes me realize that we are less homogeneous in experience than I sometimes think. And that kind of leads us to today's story. Yeah, so 
this is a story about my friend Juan, and I've known Juan for almost two decades now. We met through this rock climbing gym in Portland that that we were both members of. Juan's a few years older than me, so for the first number of years, he kind of felt like an older brother, and, and over the years, he's grown into a close friend. How old were you guys when you first met? I think I was about 11, and I didn't know a whole lot about where Juan came from at that point. I knew that he had moved to Portland from Las Vegas. I knew that his folks grew up in Mexico. I knew that he spoke fluent Spanish, uh, that he had a little bit of an assorted past. But we talked about climbing. We talked about what was going on in our lives. We went on some climbing trips together. You know, I knew that he was a good friend. I knew that he was into climbing. And it didn't even occur to me at age 11 to ask anything else. And then by the time I was old enough that I might have thought to ask those questions, I had known him for long enough that that it never occurred to me. And then last spring in March, I was scrolling through my Facebook feed and I came across this post that Juan had written about what it was like to immigrate illegally from Mexico as a small child and to grow up without legal status. And I had no idea. It was right in the middle of the uproar around Trump's initial travel ban, and he wrote the post to give his friends a sense of the real implications of this bigger political question, particularly for children who don't have any say in the matter. So today we wanted to share a story with you all. I would say a quick heads up to everybody if you're listening with young ears we are about to dig into some adult train. I'm going to go with the PG-13 rating. Do you think that's about right, Jen? Yeah, I think that's about right. Okay. So today we present the story of Juan Rodriguez's journey from Mexico to climbing shop owner. It's not one that he's really shared before, but sometimes you know that it's your moment to share the whole story of where you've come from. I'm Fitz Cajal. I'm Jen Alchel. You're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. My family, to say they came from humble beginnings is maybe a bit of an understatement. And I think that my mom, you know, they're from a different era. And I think that her life was particularly filled with lots of difficulties, lots of disappointments. And in the end, she was just looking for a way out. And my dad provided that. I don't know if they were exactly in love, but he mentioned that he would be able to bring her to the United States. Juan's mother knew that she wanted to have children. She knew she didn't want her kids to grow up the way that she had, and she knew there was no way her parents would give her permission to leave Mexico on her own. It was still that era. It's really hard to go against your parents. Being married is sort of like, okay, well, now I have my own family and my own responsibilities to take care of. You really can't tell me what to do anymore. So in that way, it would provide an out. Juan and his younger brother were born in Mexico City. Juan was three or four years old, and his brother was one or two the first time his family came to the States. But over 30 years later, he still remembers vivid scenes and snippets 
the way we came over the very, very first time was by everybody getting visas and then just overstaying their visas. Because I do remember that we got to the United States by plane. The four of them settled first in a Hispanic neighborhood in Phoenix. I don't speak any English. My mom doesn't speak any English. The house that we lived in was in a really rundown neighborhood. I remember like for fun, we would play in mud puddles. I remember there being glass in the mud puddles one time and we got really cut up and we couldn't afford band-aids. So my dad had to tear apart a shirt and tie them up around our toes and stuff to keep the bleeding to a minimum. I remember there being cockroaches like the size of my hand in the house. And then of course, you know, there was like all manner of domestic problems that were happening at that time. And I remember all that stuff really vividly. So it just wasn't very fun. Eventually, Juan's father left and the family exchanged one set of problems for another. Once my dad left, anytime that we would leave the house coming back, my mom would hold us behind her back and we'd have to walk the entire house and check every door and every closet to make sure that somebody hadn't come in while we were gone. I remember going by a church and getting money to be able to buy milk. They had a big date tree outside that church and so all these dates would fall on the ground and we would pick those up and a lot of times that's what we would eat. Juan's mom found a job working nights cleaning office buildings. And so we had to be alone a lot. She had these friends maybe or something. They had a lot of kids. And I remember us having to stay with them when she would go to work and it was really uncomfortable to like sleep in a bed full of other children, you know? It was really awkward. I remember little fun things like when my mom could afford to buy like Otter Pops and then we could maybe like go to a park. But there wasn't a ton of that going on. A few months after Juan's father left, his mom sent him and his brother back to Mexico City to live with her parents while she figured out how to earn a better living. A few months later, she returned to bring Juan, now five years old, back to the States. His brother stayed in Mexico. He was so little and attached to my grandmother that he came to know her as his real mother and could not leave her side. So I was the only one that crossed with my mom. And then this time we had to cross the border illegally. And that was, boy, that was really, really, really scary. It was like a concrete wash with this chocolate water river flowing through it at a super high pace. And on the U.S. side, You could see Border Patrol up at the top, and they were going back and forth, scanning. On the Mexico side, there were people waiting to cross, and there were people that were willing to take you across via inner tubes that had boards across them. And I remember them all being pretty big guys, and they would just sort of like bear down, grab a rope, and they would pull the inner tube across. But it was really dangerous because if they slipped or if they let go of the rope, the current would just take you. And it wasn't like, oh, we're just going to pull you across and it's over in a couple seconds or even a couple minutes. It was like very slow movements, like pick up a leg, drive it into the water, and then it's like lean into the current. So it had to be fast for that to happen, you know. And I remember being really, really scared, but we did come across. And then I remember climbing up to the other side and we're trying to be crouched down low and not be visible to the patrols that were going by. There were train tracks on the other side and I remember hiding in between rail cars and going under rail cars and hiding behind the wheels of the train trying to avoid detection and then I remember getting caught. 
when you're apprehended, then you get taken into a detention center. And these detention centers reminded me of kennels. All the uniforms were in green for the immigration officers. I remember the kennels also having green paint on the wall, but peeling, and everything was just black chain link fence. There weren't even any bars or anything like that. And that's just where you waited. Again, I'm just a little kid, so I don't know what adults are talking about at this point, but I know that the fact that we're in this cage is not a good thing. One of the most vivid memories that I have is of one of the immigration officers approaching the fence on the free side and asking my mom to come forward so they could have a conversation. And I already happened to be pressed up against the chain links. So I remember having my fingers through the links. And I know that the officer didn't realize that he was doing this, but when he approached the fence, he shifted his weight forward so it was all on one leg and he had his knee pressed against the fence and his knee was like pressed right up against my fingers. And even though my hand, my fingers were really hurting, I didn't want to cry out or say anything because I thought if I do something, it might get us in worse trouble. So I remember just taking it, just hoping that at some point in time he would release. The fear of us possibly getting in more trouble because of me complaining about something was too much for me to handle even at that age and I think this is something that I've just ended up carrying for my whole life where you just like don't want to not necessarily not make trouble because I've made plenty of trouble but you don't want to like burden somebody when it might cause more problems for another person. remember three times being caught and deported, caught and deported. And then when I finally remember making it over, we made it over through the river, managed to hide in the train tracks amongst the rail cars long enough to avoid detection. And then I remember actually making it into the town. And I remember walking down the street with my mom. And when it seemed to me like we were through, an immigration officer stopped us on the sidewalk. But whatever conversation they had, it was enough. I don't remember what the lie is that my mom told, but I remember him asking her in Spanish where we lived and she made up a street name and we were let go. But we weren't completely safe yet and we needed to get a little deeper into Arizona because our goal was to get to Phoenix. So Juan and his mom scrunched into the passenger footwell of a truck and rode that way through the evening across the Arizona desert where they were met by his mom's boyfriend. I remember having to like pull apart a barbed wire fence to get to another side of the desert. And then from there, my memory's super blurry, but I remember that then we made it to Phoenix and I knew that we were somewhat safe-ish. We were lucky though, relatively speaking, because there's people that have to walk the desert There's people that have to ride in the backs of semi-trucks with no oxygen and little water and very real risk of dying, being dehydrated out in the desert, being attacked out in the desert. Awful things happen to women and children out there. Coyotes could have helped us across only to then 
turn us into people that would hold us hostage for further payment or human trafficking. There's like a number of things that could have happened to us that didn't. I'm really grateful for that all the time. Arriving in Phoenix, it felt instantly different because at this point my mom had met someone and so we had a nice apartment and it had a pool and didn't have cockroaches in it that we didn't have to look through every door every time we came home to make sure that somebody hadn't broken in or was still there maybe. So it was really different. I just remember feeling like I have a home. Soon after they arrived, Juan started preschool at Head Start and started taking English as second language classes and adapting to life in America. It was all really strange to me because when we were living with my father, it was sort of like a Hispanic community and we didn't wander out very much. So I don't remember being exposed to American society or like Caucasians, but I clearly, clearly remember it the second time around being in these apartment complexes. I remember... The first time I saw blonde hair and blue eyes was at the pool. I was a little boy, just like completely toe-headed, just super blonde, like bright blue eyes. And I just thought it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. I just wanted to touch his eyes. And the first time I saw an African-American was in Head Start. And I'm sure, much to his annoyance, I just could not stop touching his hair. <laughs> I just had never seen something like that before, let alone felt the texture. So that got me in trouble. Juan's mom found a job cleaning apartment buildings sent for Juan's little brother, who was two at the time, and married Juan's first stepdad. I'm sure that was a marriage that happened out of convenience. But I will say that their relationship was immediately different than anything that I'd seen with my father. Like, he was a kind person. They got along. They were both really hard workers. He was a construction worker, and my mom would double shifts between cleaning apartments and helping out in construction. So we would often, like, go to the construction sites with them and... We'd be off in a corner breaking pieces of drywall that weren't being used. We were just being kids while they worked their butts off. And I remember he was really kind to us, too. Regardless of whether it was out of convenience or not, it was the first time in my childhood, I think, that I had some sense of security and some happiness. A couple of years later, and now I'm seven, and things are going what seems like normal, and then I get a sister out of it. And then again, just because I'm a kid, I just don't really know everything that happened, but for whatever reason, it just didn't work out. By that point, they were well enough established in Phoenix and just old enough that Juan's mom didn't send the kids back to live with her parents, but the divorce meant that their permanent resident applications would not go through. Things were just in limbo for a bit, which meant that we were exposed, right? And that's dangerous, right? Anything that you do that would cause you to have any interaction with police could be caused for getting deported. I remember I had to take care of my siblings a lot. We were often left alone in the house while she had to, like, go from one job to another. So just imagine that you're eight years old and that your brother's five and that your sister's one and you guys cannot run around your apartment because if the neighbors complain enough or if they complain at all, they might call the police. And if the police come, then we could be in big trouble. And that sucks. I mean, that kind of fear at that young of an age is really traumatic. 
was 13 when I finally received my permanent resident card. My mom remarried again, and I had a second stepdad. And through that marriage is finally when the permanent residency came to be. Once we had permanent residency, as long as we were in good standing, we didn't get into any trouble. If enough time had passed, we could file for citizenship. In the meantime, permanent residency meant that Juan and his family could be issued social security numbers, his mom could legally work and get a driver's license, and they no longer had to live with the specter of deportation hanging over their heads. But Juan's teenage years were filled with a new kind of fear and tumult. When my mom married my second stepfather, the decision was made to move to Las Vegas because there's more work available. In my opinion, it was a very, very terrible decision. It's like not a place for children to grow up in. You're exposed to too much, too quick. That whole town is just built on all the greed and vices of human beings, you know, and you're just surrounded by that all the time. It's not the same as when you go on vacation and you know you're going there to run amok and do all the bullshit that you don't want to do or get caught doing in your own backyard. But people that live there have to deal with and live with that every day. For my personality, for the things that were happening in my life at that time, it couldn't be a worse place for me to grow up in or to live in. I hated it there from the moment we set foot. On top of that, things were not great at home. There was just never a lot of stability in my house. The relationship between my second stepfather and my mom also did not work out, which was for the best. That person turned out to be very toxic for our family, a very manipulative person that had a lot of long-lasting bad influence, particularly on me as an impressionable young person. And so there was a period there between 14 and 18 where I was insufferable beyond like what is normal for a teenager. In Vegas... Juan was zoned for a high school known for gang violence, guarded by metal detectors and armed policemen. So I was really afraid to go there. I ended up getting into a magnet school, the Advanced Technologies Academy, which was, I thought, going to be for a lot of smart kids doing stuff that I like to do. And it just ended up not being that way. It had its own form of harassment. It was small and Hispanic, and there was a lot of segregation and racism going on, but also a lot of reverse racism just for my own culture, just because I tended to like things that weren't the status quo for other Latin Americans or for other Hispanics. Like I was into skateboarding and long hair and punk rock. And that was perceived as me trying to be white. And so I would get in a lot of trouble over that with other peers. And I think I just reached a point where, you know, basically like if you can't beat them, join them. So it's a bit of an embarrassing point for me, but I didn't graduate high school. I dropped out right after freshman year. And I never went back for those next three years. So we're talking 14 to 17 and a half. I was pretty heavily involved in trouble, ranging from typical teenage stuff all the way to stuff having to do with, with drugs and things like that. I put myself in constant situations that always had the potential for me winding up dead or doing serious time. Do you know how many times you got arrested in this for you? You know, maybe like a dozen times. Um, no, maybe less than that. Let's say more than six, less than a dozen. Uh, probably came close to dying like 
three times from just people pointing guns. Never part of a gang or anything like that, but just hung out in environments where all that stuff is really prevalent. Mm -hmm. I mean, Las Vegas is a really dangerous place, period. Because there's lots of drug activity, I mean, you could say the wrong thing to the wrong person who's been on a bender for the last three days and they're not acting quite normal. And that could cost you something. I had a gun pointed at me once just for racing somebody on a street and getting the win in the middle of a crowded four-lane street at an intersection. Three people got out with a, a single barrel shotgun and came for us. I hit them with my car, actually, in trying to get out of there. And I actually crashed my car into theirs because they continued to come after us even after we had like wiggled our way out. This was on Christmas Eve. We were on our way to a bowling alley. And we could have died. We could have died that night. Coming to Portland was a saving grace. I'm a strong believer in signs. Like you had to pay attention to the signs pointing the way, especially for good things in your life. When I was a teenager, I was really, really into skateboarding. And the only thing I actually knew about Portland was through the game Tony Hawk. There was a level where you could skate Burnside Skate Park. For some reason, I like to skate that level a bunch in the game. And so I always just told my friends as soon as I turned 18 that I would move up here to come and skate Burnside Skate Park. I just sort of stayed in my head and stayed in my head. And then I just remember turning 18, getting off of probation and realizing that if I got in any more trouble, I would now be in adult trouble, right? It wouldn't be juvenile hall anymore. It would be county or full-on penitentiary type of experiences, which I knew that I would not survive in. I just remember being in a hotel room in Las Vegas, and it was like three in the morning, and I saw an infomercial pop up for a school. And as I was watching the infomercial, I was like, oh, maybe I could go to a trade school. And then it said, located in beautiful Portland, Oregon. And I called up immediately and got a packet for this vocational school. And uh, within a few months, I had a one-way ticket here. And I never looked back. So you get to Portland. Okay, first off, when did you go skate? Side? I never did it. Never skated the park, not once. What? Never skated it. Nope. First of all, I didn't know how to skate vert. All the skateboarding I did was all street. Skate parks weren't yet a thing when I was 15, 16, 17. And then by the time I'd arrived in Portland, I had already been climbing for about three or four months. Do you remember the first time you went climbing? Mm -hmm. The very first time I ever climbed anything, I was... 17, we were walking down the strip with my family and there was an arcade on the strip called Gameworks, two stories high. And walking in through the front entrance, there was a 72-foot tower with climbing holds all over it. It was made to look like a desert tower. I asked my mom for $10 because it was $10 to climb it once. Paid the guy who gave me a pair of climbing shoes and a rental harness, put me on belay. And I'm sure he put me on the easiest route there. I didn't know anything about climbing. I thought it was about how fast you could get up the thing. All I know is that I raced to the top of this thing and I felt like king shit of the hill. I just thought it was the greatest feeling in all the world. And I thought I was a professional. <laughs> I was like, there's nothing to this. I'm great at it. And I felt great because I was never 
in organized sports. I wasn't good at them. I wasn't coordinated. I wasn't an athlete by any means. So to do this the first time and make it to the top, it's just like this feeling of, I don't know, like, it's like how you would describe one of those try once drugs that you try one time and they change you forever. It was kind of like that, but in the healthiest way possible. Like I did that and I never to this day got rid of that feeling. I mean, I'm pretty sure if you could map out my brain, I'm sure it changed my brain chemistry. I stopped everything else. I rarely skateboarded anymore. By the time I got to Portland, I didn't even have a skateboard in hand. And the first thing I did when I got to Portland within the first week of getting settled into my apartment was to find a climbing gym. Portland in general was such a strikingly different environment from anything that I grew up in. So it was really hard to get used to the idea that people might be friendly just for the sake of being friendly. Because remember, I grew up in an environment where you couldn't trust anybody. And if you trusted the wrong person, it could have serious consequences on your health. So coming to a place like Portland where people were genuinely nice, I was suspicious of everyone for every reason. And then Juan walked into Stoneworks Climbing Gym, a tiny little quirky rock gym in a Portland suburb. I sort of just walked in and never walked back out, it feels like. Even though it took a little bit for those rough edges to kind of wear off, it was probably the first time since I was really young that I felt a family. When I felt safe, and by safe I mean like where I felt like I could just be myself. If I wanted to come in with long hair and listening to punk rock or wear a punk rock t-shirt and I wasn't going to have somebody come up to me and be like, were you trying to be white? Like when I didn't have to worry about that, when I knew that I didn't have to look at my surroundings and figure out which was going to be the quickest way to get out in case something happened, I started to feel comfortable. And then what I noticed is that then people were taking an interest in me simply because, right? One of the people who took interest was a woman named Kelly Rice, a regular at the gym and a more experienced climber. Kelly Rice is somebody that I'll never forget as having an amazing impact on me as a young person because out of nowhere one day she was just like, do you want to like climb outside? You know, I just thought that was, so, I'm like, you don't know me. We have no contact other than here at the gym. Like, why would you be interested in taking me out? Like, I just couldn't fathom that somebody would just be interested in showing me something just for the sake of showing me. I'd never camped before even. And so just like the idea of sleeping out under the stars and then her taking me out and showing me what the equipment was, was one of the greatest gifts that anybody could have done for me at a young age. Another person who took interest was Molly Beard. Molly was the coach of the Stoneworks Junior Climbing Team at the time and an incredible route setter and climber. Again, she just met Juan through the gym saw his enthusiasm, appreciated his company, and decided to take him under her wing. Her husband had a convention to attend in Las Vegas for work, and Molly asked Juan if he would climb with her in Red Rocks. I mean, I remember feeling so honored to the point that I was at a loss for words to have someone of her status and caliber of athlete ask me if I would go and climb with her in Las Vegas. I was like, why would you want to do that with me? I don't know anything. I can't climb as hard as you. And she was like, none of that matters. We can go to an area where there's something for 
both of us, and I'll show you what you need to know. She taught me how to lead. She taught me how to clean. I got my first exposure to multi-pitching. And I'll never forget that, like the impact that that had on me. And then also to go home and be like, there's a whole nother side of this city that is now available to me that has nothing to do with the environments that I grew up in. That's something else to do when I went home now that was healthy and productive for me and left a good taste in my mouth. For the next five years, climbing consumed Juan's free time. He worked odd jobs in Portland. Then he got his first job at a climbing gym at 24 and worked in gyms and traveled to climb. He only quit working in a gym so he could launch an endless climbing road trip, which he subsidized with occasional work as an interpreter. For his last major stint on the road, he took a six-month road trip that started in Mexico, wound up the West Coast, and traversed as far east as Colorado. Once that trip was over, I had zero money. I was forced to get a job where I was working in a cubicle, and it was the first time that I ever experienced seasonal depression, (laughs) especially after coming off a trip like that. And then I was afforded the opportunity to be able to work at a climbing shop in town. And I realized that I really loved doing it. Even the more boring aspects of it, I didn't mind doing. I liked my interactions with the people that came in to shop every day. When people come in to shop for climbing gear, no one's ever in a bad mood. (laughs) Everybody's always off on some exciting adventure or learning something new, or they're coming back for some adventure and they wanna share that with you. It just like really just fed my soul, you know? It was just an amazing experience. And I really felt like I could do it on my own. So after working there for two years, I saved up all my money and then decided that I was gonna go for it and open my own shop. So Stoneworks ended up having unused space in the mezzanine in the newest section of their gym. And I approached father and son owners of the gym and I asked if I could lease the space from them to open the store. And there wasn't even like a pause in the decision. They were just like, when do you want to start? It just felt like coming and sitting down in front of your family and being like, hey, can we add to the business? that the climbing community is so at least my experience with it has been that it's been a really open very accepting community i have heard some people say out there that it's not that it's largely male dominated and about conquering and i think those are maybe some elements that are present but generally at large i think that's a harsh blanket statement to put on the climbing community as a whole i can honestly say amongst climbers I've never had like a racist experience. The community is so dang friendly. It's hard to just show up and be a jerk. In my time in this community, if you have a jerky attitude, you don't last very long around here. And it's not because people like push you out or anything. You just can't handle the niceness. Generally, I feel like we're really accepting people, really adventurous. And so what I would envision is just to continue bringing that together If you have a friend that's Asian, if you have a friend that's African-American, if you have a friend that's Hispanic, invite them. Show them how awesome this world is. Be a good steward and you can have a profound impact. 
In addition to his own experience, Juan has also worked as a translator for a law firm that works with juveniles caught trying to cross the border illegally. If the lawyers can prove the kids were victims of abuse, abandonment, or neglect, they can qualify for a special immigrant juvenile visa. The issue that gets me the most is anything that has to do with children. The part that affects me the most is how long-lasting that trauma can be. So you can imagine the stories that these children had to tell. That's not necessarily something that you read about all the time in the news. And even if you do, it is not the same as being face-to-face with a 12-year-old who had been raped repeatedly, just trying to get from South America to the Mexican border to then be able to cross or to have your loved ones die of dehydration in the desert and you made it out alive or to watch somebody's hands get chopped off with a machete when they weren't able to produce money to be able to, these stories are so hard to tell. The point of it is, without needing to get any more graphic, is that the immigration thing is far more beyond people just trying to get over here to pull a fast one. The issue is much bigger than that. And especially when children are concerned, the impact can be really severe. Do you have any sense of how going through that as a kid has affected you going forward? Or what does that look like in coloring your life? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of lot of ways in, in which that affects. Like, it makes it hard sometimes to communicate. It's really, really hard to turn off protective armor. Maybe that's all I want to say about that. It's just difficult. I mean, the impact can look any number of ways, but for me, I think where it probably has the biggest impact on me is socially and in like very close relationships with people. It makes it really difficult. I have really good reason to believe if I... Ugh, let me start that over. That's emotional. I have really, really good reason to believe that if I hadn't have been walking down the strip and found that 72-foot tower to climb, that I would be dead or in prison. Like, I have no doubts about that. When did the creature tells for you? his bloody flank to run you through oh mercy lord have mercy lord have mercy on us all the diaries is made possible by the good people at patagonia need a good book this fall check out path of the puma During a time when most wild animals are experiencing decline in the face of development and climate change, the intrepid mountain lion has experienced reinvigoration as well as expansion of territory. What makes this cat so resilient and resourceful? Pick up a copy at patagonia.com and find out. Additional support comes from Kuat Racks, a little company who believed they could build a better bike rack and did. Check out their full lineup of easy-to-use roof racks and hitch racks at kuatracks.com. And support comes from Vossing Brewing. Are you in the Richmond area? Visit their beautiful tap room and try out their new Tarte Grisette, a clean, refreshing, crisp ale dry-hopped with lemon drop hops. Not in Virginia? 
follow them on social media at Vossen Brewing. You, our listeners, truly keep the diaries thriving. The colder weather is upon us, the leaves are turning, which means one thing, time for tales of terror. Got a scary story? We've got one more weekend. Type it up and send it in. Visit our website, dirtbagdiaries.com, and click on the Write for Us tab for submission guidelines. A huge thank you to Juan for sharing his story. His climbing shop, anti-gravity equipment, he's been open for three years now. If you're in the Portland area, pay him a visit or shop online at antigravityequipment.com. Music today from Cloud9, Kai Engel, Dr. Turtle, Hopeless Jack, Vienna Ditto, and Little Glass Men. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive or with permission from the artists. Jacob Bain and Nishikoto composed our theme song. As always, you can find links to the artists at our website. This episode was produced by me, Jen Alchel, Becca Cahal, and Fitz Cahal. Fitz and Becca just left for Colorado to celebrate the wedding of two of our longtime contributors. Congratulations, Brendan and Hillary. So I'm filling in. You've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Wheels is bloody flank to run you through.